Hey there, welcome to Tea with Mara. Thanks for seeking out these recordings and listening. My name is George, or you may know me in the metaverse as Kiyoki from Together with Trip. These recordings are from my live sessions in virtual reality and may sometimes feature other content. For the best experience of these sessions, you can join me in virtual reality. But when you can't, or if you want to go back and listen again, these audio or video recordings will be offered freely to all. To join us in VR or for the live broadcast on our Discord server, you can find our full schedule of events by visiting trip.com events, including instructions on how to join us in VR. You can even join in 2D mode from a computer. If you wish to support my teachings and these recordings, the best way to do that is to leave a review and share this podcast with others. And if you find value in them and you want to, you can make a donation offering right through the Two Hands Sangha website or soon through the podcast itself. All links should be found in the show notes. Now let's invite the bell and begin. Good evening and welcome, and thanks for being here for some mindfulness on this Monday. Tonight, I wanted to address a, a, a tough topic to address, and I'll address it in a very broad way, in a way that's sort of close to home rather than in the big sort of societal, systemic way, uh, although it's really uh, going to be a little bit of both. But anyhow, I, I think somebody in our community posted on the Discord about experiencing some racism in their family and how to deal with it. And there was lots of discussion about that, and it was really uh, interesting and good stuff. And uh, and just the very, 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 very tip of the iceberg. <laughs> uh, and instead of addressing that specific point or question, since I don't really know much about uh, the, the exact thing, I can't recall exactly what it was, I figured this is something that probably a lot of us deal with. Myself being in the South, I certainly have, uh, you know, family and friends who might be racist. And so we'll talk about how to work with that in sort of a general way. From a Dharma perspective, when we talk about this problem, we don't so much look at it as how to correct or fix that person, you know, at least not directly but more so how we can practice with that situation and by doing so, how we can transform the problem. At least that's the hope. <laughs> because of course you can't actually fix someone else. They have to do that. And they have to be willing to do that. <laughs> and there's ultimately only a few ways that they might ever do so. One of which is by wanting to be more like you. So 
the fix to that problem that the Dharma offers is not a quick fix. And it's most definitely not an easy fix. Uh, nor can I promise that it will be a fix. Um, because, you know, ultimately it relies on them, not you. Uh, and I can't promise it won't be messy, too. Uh, I don't think there's one thing that isn't messy, to be honest, when you're talking about this topic. But at least this method also makes sure that you're able to handle that mess when it happens, if it occurs. So this, this is a talk about boundaries and acceptance, really. And about using those things to deal with a racist in the family or uh, racist friends or people in our sphere of influence, you know, around us in our lives. The first thing we can do really when addressing this is recognize the difficulty of it. It's, you know, it's a hard thing to hold. And it's hard to experience for everyone. Uh, and it's extremely difficult to navigate with co without causing harm somewhere. Uh, so it requires great effort. It requires just tremendous, uh, tremendous mindfulness. If you're not mindful, you're definitely going to cause harm when you try to deal with it. <laughs> so... And even if you're very mindful, you might cause harm because sometimes harm is unavoidable. I'm far from a pro on this topic, especially in the most current uh, ways these days. You know, just talking about it can sometimes be a whole problem on its own. And that makes it all the more difficult and all the more important. And while I'm no pro at it, I can tell you that there is a real good reason that my most important teachers have been women and women of color. Anyhow, when we encounter racism, especially within our own family or friend circle, uh, let alone in our community, it's a real bummer, of course. And we're talking about the explicit stuff here, not even the, you know, not even... Uh, scratching the surface of the systemic aspects of it. Uh, just the direct, I got to deal with my, you know, crazy Uncle Joe or whatever it is, you know. The Buddha existed in a time and place where they had a caste system, which uh, wasn't even about race, but just about your family and your lineage. The same race, but essentially uh, the same kind of treatment that uh, we see in racism a lot nowadays. Uh, but, but it was based on uh, what lineage you were born into, not the color of your skin. So if you were born into a particular group, your whole life was decided based on that. Uh, and you could not rise above it or dip below it. And all that came with that. And again, you know, I don't claim to be uh, a pro on this topic, but I also... I'm a firm believer that you don't have to be a pro. You don't have to be the smartest, you know, most up-to-date person in the room to know right from wrong and to act with kindness and compassion. The Buddha, it turns out, had a lot to say about equality and acceptance uh, or a lot to do. He tended to be the kind to let his actions talk first and 
than words. <laughs> the Buddha took a rather radical and revolutionary approach to life in general uh, and the caste system specifically. There's a very good reason why a pretty large population of punk rock minded folks nowadays follow the Buddhist path. It's because he was very punk rock before punk rock was punk rock. Uh, he, he had this very question everything mentality and very much anti-authoritarian. Um, and the Buddha promoted and exhibited uh, equality and inclusion. He was not uh, as inclusive when it came to women, I'm afraid, and at first excluded women, although he came around on that. And the fact that he wasn't inclusive of women says a lot about the plight of women in that time as well, if you think about that. But he did, he did eventually become more inclusive even with that, and he originally didn't allow nuns to ordain, but then eventually did. And even then, they were sort of treated less than the monks. Uh, and that treatment actually is only just now, in the last few decades, or decade, starting to change meaningfully. My teacher, for example, has been a big part of seeing to it that women are ordained in order to teach. She's personally ordained a tremendous number of bhikkhunis. But he did, he did more for more than most could even wrap their minds around in his time. And it kind of pissed people off, to be honest. But anyhow, he truly believed in the inherent worth and dignity of all beings, of all beings. And that's one of the reasons that the first precept is that of non-harming and why we practice for the benefit of all beings in all directions, not some beings in some directions, not the beings that we like. <laughs> all beings, and I hate to tell you, but all beings includes the racists. And that's a hard pill to swallow, right? And it was because he understood that to exclude someone was to exclude everyone. To hate one was to hate all, and to hurt one was to hurt all. You can't very well go around espousing a non-dualistic practice while saying that one class is better than another, or one gender is better than another, or race, or so on. So regardless of any societal labels, he ignored the common practices of the caste system at his time. And uh, there's a lot of examples of it in the canon. And there's this one story I really like of the story of Sunita. And I'd like to read you that story tonight as told by Thich Nhat Hanh in the book Old Path, White Clouds. One day, as the Buddha and the bhikkhus were begging in a village near the banks of the Ganja, the Buddha spotted a man carrying night soil, which was human excrement, as was the job for someone in that caste. The man was an untouchable named Sunita, part of the untouchable class. Caste, he says. Sunita had heard about the Buddha and the bhikkhus, but this was the first time he had ever seen them in person. He was alarmed, knowing how dirty his clothes were, how foul he smelled from carrying the night soil. And he quickly moved off the path and made his way down to the river. But the Buddha was determined to share the way with Sunita. Now, in the previous telling of this, 
we we find that the Buddha knew through the powers of being the Buddha that uh, that this young man was ready to become a enlightened being. So he went looking for him, but doesn't really talk about that in here. But the Buddha was determined to share the way with Sunita. So when Sunita veered off of the path, the Buddha did the same. Understanding the Buddha's intent, Sariputta and Magiya, two of the monks with him, both attending him at the time, they followed him. And the rows of other bhikkhus came to a halt and they quietly watched. Sunita was panic-stricken. He hastily put down the buckets of night soil and looked for a place to hide. Above him stood the bhikkhus in their saffron robes, while before him approached the Buddha and the two other bhikkhus. Not knowing what else to do, Sunita waded into the water up to his knees in the river, and he stood with his palms joined. Curious villagers came out of their homes and lined the shore to watch what was happening. Sunita had veered off the path because he was afraid that he would pollute the bhikkhus. So you see, he was raised to believe that in his core, like at the, in, in everything in his being, he was raised to, to think that he was dirty and foul and could not touch someone like the Buddha or he would foul him. So Sunita could not have guessed that the Buddha would follow him. Sunita knew that the Sangha included many men from noble castes, and he was sure that polluting a bhikkhu was an unforgivable act. He hoped that the Buddha and bhikkhus would leave him alone and return to the road, but the Buddha did not leave. He walked right up to the water's edge and said, My friend, please come closer so that we may talk. Sunita, still with his palms joined, protested, Lord, I don't dare. Why not? asked the Buddha. And he said, I am an untouchable. I don't want to pollute you and your monks. So imagine thinking from birth that you're not inherently good enough to even touch another person or look at them. Imagine thinking that you were inherently better than someone else or shouldn't be touched by them. Neither way of thinking happens within a person's own mind, like in a vacuum. These are you know, there's, there's unfathomable karmic seeds that grow that kind of belief system within both. And that's very important for us in this talk tonight. The Buddha replied, on our path, we no longer distinguish between castes, Sunita. You are a human being like the rest of us. We are not afraid of being polluted. Only greed, hatred, and delusion can pollute us. A person as pleasant as yourself brings us nothing but happiness. What is your name? He says, Lord, my name is Sunita. Sunita, would you like to become a bhikkhu like the rest of us? And he says, I couldn't. Why not? I'm an untouchable. Sunita, I have already explained that on our path there is no caste. In the way of awakening, caste no longer exists. It is like all of the rivers around us. Once they empty into the sea, they no longer retain their separate identities of the Ganges and whatever. A person who leaves home to follow the way leaves behind caste, whether he was born a Brahmin, a Vaishya, a Shudra, or an untouchable, or any of the others. Sunita, if you like, you can become a bhikkhu like the rest of us. 
Sunita could hardly believe his ears. He placed his joined palms before his forehead and said, No one has ever spoken to me so kindly before. This is the happiest day of my life. If you accept me as your disciple, I vow to devote all of my being to practicing your teachings. The Buddha handed his bowl to Magia and reached his hand out to Sunita. He said, Sariputta, help me clean up this young man, and we will ordain him as a bhikkhu right here on the bank of the river. Venerable Sariputta smiled. Uh, he placed his own bowl on the ground and came forward to assist the Buddha. Sunita still felt afraid as Sariputta and the Buddha scrubbed him clean, having been raised to think he should not be touched by beings such as these holy men. Um, but he didn't dare protest. The Buddha asked Magia to go up and ask Ananda for an extra robe. And after Sunita was ordained, the Buddha assigned him into Sariputta's care. Sariputta led him back to Jetavana's grove where the Buddha and the rest of the bhikkhus continued their begging. The local people had witnessed all of this take place. The news spread quickly that the Buddha had accepted an untouchable into his sangha. This caused a furor amongst the higher castes in the capital. Never in the history of Kosala had an untouchable been accepted into a spiritual community. Many condemned the Buddha for violating this sacred tradition. Others went so far as to suggest that the Buddha was plotting to overthrow the existing order and wreak havoc in the country. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> like how people spread the word in our world when someone does something that they disagree with in their worldview. You know, they flap their gums and they spread more hate and they create more karma. And suddenly someone who doesn't believe uh, what they believe is labeled as the enemy. You're going to turn my child gay. You're going to, you know, you're getting special treatment. You're either with me or against me. You're getting my job, you know, whatever it is. But back to Sunita and the Buddha. The echoes of all these accusations reached the monastery through lay disciples as well as from bhikkhus who had heard people saying things in the city. Senior disciples met to discuss the people's reactions with the Buddha. The Buddha said, accepting untouchables into the Sangha was simply a question of time. Our way is the way of equality. We do not recognize caste. Though we may encounter difficulties over Sunita's ordination now, we will have opened a door for the first time in history that future generations will thank us for. We must have courage. And if I heard that, if I wasn't already ordained, I would walk up and ask to ordain right then. <laughs> Mahamagalana said, We do not lack courage or endurance, but how can we help reduce the hostility of public opinion to make it easier for the bhikkhus to do their practice. Keep in mind, the bhikkhus relied on the people for begging for food. So if they make the people mad, they don't get food. So it's a real problem. Magalana said, you know, we don't lack that courage. Sariputta said, the important thing is to remain trusting in our practice. I will strive to assist Sunita making progress on the path. His success will be the strongest argument in our favor. We can also seek ways to explain our belief in equality to the people. What do you think, Master? The Buddha placed his hand on Sariputta's shoulder. He said, you have spoken my own thoughts. 
Before long, the uproar over Sunita's ordination reached the ears of King Pasanadi. Uh, a group of religious leaders requested a private audience with him. They expressed their grave concerns over this most important matter. Their convincing arguments disturbed the king. And although he was a devoted follower of the Buddha, he promised the leaders that he would look into this matter. Some days later, he paid a visit to Jetavana's grove, and he climbed down from his carriage and walked through the monastery grounds all alone. Bhikkhus passed by him on the path beneath the cool shade of the trees. The king followed the path that led to the Buddha's hut. He bowed to each bhikkhu as he passed. As always, the serene and composed manner of the bhikkhus reinforced his faith in the Buddha. Halfway to the hut, he encountered a bhikkhu sitting on a large rock beneath a great pine tree, teaching a small group of bhikkhus and lay disciples. It was a most appealing sight. The bhikkhu offering the teaching looked less than 40 years old. His face radiated great peace and wisdom. His listeners were clearly absorbed with what he had to say. The king paused and listened to this dharma talk and was moved by what he heard. But suddenly he remembered his purpose and he continued on his way to see the Buddha. He hoped to return later and listen to this bhikkhu's teachings, for they were so profound. The Buddha welcomed the king outside his hut, inviting him to sit on a bamboo chair. And after they exchanged formal greetings, the king asked the Buddha who the bhikkhu was that was sitting on the rock. The Buddha smiled and answered, that is bhikkhu Sunita. He was once an untouchable who carried night soil. What do you think of his teaching? The king felt very embarrassed. The bhikkhu, with so radiant a bearing, was none other than the very night soil carrier Sunita, whom he had come there to talk about. He would never have guessed this was possible. Before he knew how to respond, the Buddha said, Bhikkhu Sunita has devoted himself wholeheartedly to his practice from the day of his ordination. He is a man of great sincerity, intelligence, and resolve. Though he was ordained only three months ago, he has already earned a reputation for great virtue and purity of heart. Would you like to meet him and make an offering to this most worthy of bhikkhus? The king replied with frankness, I would indeed like to meet Bhikkhu Sunita and make an offering to him. Master, your teaching is deep and wondrous. I have never met another spiritual teacher with so open a heart and mind. I do not think there is a person, animal, or plant that does not benefit from your presence and understanding. I must tell you that I came here today with the intention of asking you, how could you accept an untouchable into your sangha? But I have seen, heard, and understood why. I no longer dare ask such a question. Instead, allow me to prostrate myself before you. So this is the king bowing down to the Buddha on the ground. So, you know, you see, the Buddha set an example. The night soil carrier Sunita embodied that example, and the example of the Dharma and its equality as exemplar is what the king saw. He saw true wisdom free from judgment planted in his ears by others because he didn't know what this man looked like. He only saw a bhikkhu full of wisdom. He didn't see a night soil carrier. So the point is that when we set the example and we embody that example, maybe, just maybe, others will see and understand and desire that same quality. And maybe not. But you can't argue your way into it. You can't... Uh, convince other people to change their minds by telling them they're wrong.
that's usually doesn't work, you know. So the king stood up intending to prostrate himself, uh, but the Buddha stood up as well and he took the king's hand and he asked the king to sit down again. When they were both seated, the Buddha looked at the king and said, Majesty, in the way of liberation, there is no caste. In the eyes of an enlightened person, all people are equal. Every person's blood is red. Every person's tears are salty. We are all human beings. We must find a way for all people to be able to realize their full dignity and potential. That is why I welcome Sunita into the Sangu of Bhikkhus. The king joined his palms together and said, I understand now. I also know that the path you have chosen will be filled with obstacles and difficulties. For my own part, I will do everything in my power to support the true teachings. The king took his leave of the Buddha and returned to the pine tree in the hopes of listening to Bhikkhu Sunita's teachings. So the first thing we need in our toolbox to deal with racism uh, and inequality is understanding and compassion. The roots of racism are ignorance and greed. Ignorance shows up as fear, usually, or hatred. And greed is for the power that comes from ignorance. The ignorance of believing that the only way to have power is to keep others from having it. And that's just one of many examples in the Dharma. But we must have compassion for the ignorant. If we aren't compassionate for the ignorant, then we're just doing the same thing that they are. We're saying, well, that person is less than because they believe such and such. And that's a hard pill to swallow, like I said earlier. We can't love their actions, but we absolutely can still love the people. Metta, or loving kindness, is often difficult for people when they get to the point of the difficult people. <laughs> it's all fun and games when you're wishing happiness and joy for your friend or benefactor. But when we get to that politician, or your parents who neglected you, or your uncle who is a racist prick, it suddenly seems impossible. But the Buddha's way was one of love and equality for all. And we have to learn and teach the importance of compassion towards even those holding the racist views. As, you know, I started to say especially, but that's not true. It's no more. It's just the same for everyone. The importance of compassion uh, can't be overstated. And we have to recognize that ignorance. We can do this with mindful communication and wise implementation and cultivation of good, strong boundaries. Boundaries is something we don't talk enough about, I don't think. Boundaries are for us what we will do or not do. It's not something that we impose on others, telling them what they can and can't do. That's abuse of power. Boundaries are for us. We can also use samavaka or wise speech and sort of strive to always embody and use truthful, non-harmful communication when speaking. Setting healthy boundaries is something that protects us from the toxic effects of racism. 
uh, at least to some extent, at least to the extent of how much we expose ourselves to it. We choose who we allow to be around us. We choose our family and friends. And yes, you choose your family. You're not stuck with them just because they're blood. <laughs> we choose who's a part of our lives. You may not be able to change that they're your family, but you can choose how much time you spend with them and how what that access is and so on. We choose who we allow around us and you know what we allow ourselves to tolerate from them before we remove ourselves from their lives. If we all practice healthy boundaries, we won't find ourselves in the company of those who practice hate. And if we embody the Dharma and cultivate a good life through it, when they want what we have, they will have to meet the requirements of our boundaries in order to get it. I have cut many people out of my life simply by holding myself to a strong boundary of non-willingness to be around those who are hateful. And yet, uh, you know, I've talked many times in here about how many times I've been forgiven for doing something stupid or saying something stupid or behaving in a way that I didn't understand was wrong at that time. So, it, those people who forgave me and helped me were showing me compassion. So, you know, I, I try to keep that in mind as well. But it's also okay to set those boundaries and hold people to them. By simply holding myself to a strong boundary, um, you know, I can still love them and would even be kind to those people. But I don't have to give them my time if they exhibit hatred. One of my oldest and dearest friends went to the dark side during the COVID crisis. And uh, I won't go into detail about that, but just all the, you name it, they went to it. <laughs> they became one of those people, you know. And I ceased making myself constantly available to them. I still love them. I still tell them so. But I also very honestly let them know that I believe people are equal. And that I'm not willing to be around some of the things that they say and the language they use and the views that they espouse. And it wasn't just race. It was science and all sorts of things, you know. They live in a very um, different mm, community than I do. And they believe the things they hear in that community. And so it really was a situation of them being exposed significantly more to those kinds of views than they were to the other. So, you know, I had to work around that. I'm pleased to say that they're still very close to me and they haven't changed their views completely, but they also haven't shared them in front of me. Is that better? A little. Is it best? Nope. But me hating them wouldn't have changed anything except make it worse. We cannot change others, but we can choose how we respond and engage with them. The best way for us to practice around all of this uh, is personal practice and self-reflection. Mindfulness to encourage awareness and, uh, of personal reactions and biases. And loving kindness to cultivate loving kindness for all beings, including those who hold harmful views. You can, you know, a famous, I think it was maybe Jack Cornfield or somebody that said, you can love somebody without letting them into your house. 
<laughs> that's that's good stuff. <laughs> that's real good stuff to know. You know, you can love someone doesn't mean you have to invite them into your home, you know, so to speak, physically or mentally. <laughs> we can take Buddhist principles into social action against racism. Um, against hatred of any kind. We can teach others by embodying compassion and wisdom and understanding, which is love. We can fall back into self-care when we need to so that we don't burn out doing social action. So just as the Buddha said to King Pasanadi on, uh, you know, he said, or actually he said this to the monks, he said, our way is a way of equality. We do not practice inequality. When he opened that door for the first time in history for future generations and knew that they would thank, be thankful for it being opened, he said they must have courage. We're the ones that should thank him. And we have the same courage to learn from him. We need to embody that same set of teachings because everyone's tears are salty. So let's just sit for a few minutes. We don't have a ton of meditation time. I would have liked to have done a lot of metta practice tonight, but let's just sit together for a few minutes here and let the words and let the thoughts and let the feelings, uh, you know, undoubtedly the things I said brought up feelings for you. Let's just sit with those for a minute and notice them, not judge ourselves for them and not create stories about them just sitting breathing in breathing out long slow out breaths Relaxing the muscles of the body and the face and the jaw and the neck and shoulders and arms, the torso, the legs, feet. Coming back into the belly and using some of those long, slow out-breaths to relax all the muscles around the belly. Just reflecting on whatever came up for you in this talk. Maybe it was realization that you need to be compassionate for someone who you think is the problem. Or maybe it's realization that, uh, you know, you, there's someone in your life that you need to limit. Someone who you need to lead by example for, but limit access to you. Maybe you need to show, you. maybe you grew up in uh, an area of the country that mm, these kind of views are normal, but they don't have to be. 
my uh, one of my teachers visited recently and I mentioned it here they were visiting on the week of their anniversary and their whole trip was around visiting their roots visiting the places where visiting the places where uh, their ancestors were horribly mistreated, to put it overly politely. They visited museums and historical sites and reclaimed uh, some of their history. And they are both people who lead by example. They practice the Dharma They embody wisdom and strength of Sunita. They lead by example and they uh, hold strong, firm boundaries. They engage with the world through this practice. And they take care of themselves. Everything we talked about tonight, that's what they do. And when I look at them, I want what they have. I want that kind of uh, strength and wisdom and love. And all throughout the Buddha's teachings, over and over and over again, he says one thing. Keep the company of wise friends and suitable companions. And that's how you change the world. By taking care of yourself, you take care of others. By taking care of others, you take care of yourself. By doing those things, you lead by example. You show people what's possible. You make mistakes. And you ask forgiveness. And you show that you learn. And you offer love. And you embody the Dharma. You practice with community.
when I was preparing this talk today in the part of that story of Sunita where he's panicking and runs into the water because he thinks that he's not good enough to touch another human being who he thinks is better than him. And that's not something he thought of himself. It's built into him. When I read that part today, I was in tears. Because it's everywhere around us today. You're still here? It's over. Go practice. Go. Chicala.